awesome. As we were singing that song, that was reminding me that uh, I'm looking forward this fall on Sunday mornings, we're going to be doing a series on the heart of worship. And we've already started, Nicole and I, to talk about what that may look like, so I'm excited about that. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We learn at the beginning of the chapter that Apollos stays in Corinth and that Paul comes to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So before we get into this chapter that really talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to Ephesus, we need to talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus and what was going on there and hopefully it will enhance our study of the word tonight and help maybe even make some sense about what's going on. Because I'm primarily going to concentrate on the first 20 verses. Uh, verses 21 through 41, we won't pay as much attention to, and we'll get into that later. Let's talk about the city of Ephesus. First of all, it was a great metropolitan area of several hundred thousand people, even back in the ancient world. But here's what it was known for. It was home to one of then the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana, or Artemis, as it is referred to here in the Net Bible. It goes by either. Literally, people came from all over the world to visit Ephesus and to visit the Temple of Diana. Two reasons. One, they could be worshipers of Diana, and like even people today, it's sort of like a pilgrimage that they make to a place of worship, and so the city would balloon to even more than, than a million people at times because of all that. There were other people that just wanted to visit, in a sense, as a tourist. You see, Ephesus was a big sort of tourist area a tourist destination. People wanted to go there. It was a good climate, beautiful city, and oh, by the way, yeah, it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, involved. So I want you to keep that in mind. You see, Ephesus, because of this, was a place of spiritual darkness. In fact, it was also one of the sort of leading places of the ancient world for occultic practices. And we're going to see how that plays into the chapter as well. So I want you to keep all of that sort of background in mind as we come to Acts chapter 19. So again, Apollos is left at Corinth. Paul comes into the city of Ephesus, and as soon as he gets there, he meets what the Bible says are 12 disciples or learners. I would like to refer to these 12 as sort of Christians in waiting because they're not Christians yet. The word disciple can just basically mean one who is following someone else and someone who is willing to learn. And that's what we have here. The reason we know that they're not believers yet is because Paul says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they're like, We've never even heard of a Holy Spirit. So Paul then says, well, into what were you baptized? 
And they said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism, meaning John the Baptist. And Paul points out, well, John's the Baptist's baptism was unto repentance, but it was always looking ahead to the one that he always talked about that would come after him that was greater than him, whose sandals he wasn't even worthy to tie, Jesus. And John the Baptist's ministry was all about pointing people to Jesus. So, Acts 19, Luke tells us that after they listened to Paul and his message about Jesus, that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that then Paul laid his hands upon these men and they received the Holy Spirit and then they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And then verse 7 tells us there was 12 of them. There's four things that I want to point out here in this encounter. Because Ephesus was this extraordinary place with an extraordinary background and, and you know, some extraordinary things as a part of it, God also was doing some extraordinary things at Ephesus that he didn't do anywhere else. He, he worked in ways at Ephesus that many times he didn't work in other places. And the reason that's important to point out is because what this chapter then reminds us of is don't put our God in a box. God will not always work the same way all the time. And that we, instead of allowing, you know, or trying to put God and fit him into our mold, let God be God. Let him do what he wants to do. And it's not always going to be the same way, the same time, the same thing. And you're going to see this sort of pattern of not a pattern, if you will, throughout the chapter. So that's one thing to keep in mind because, again, remember, our study of the book of Acts is Christ's vision for his church. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what we see here initially in the city of Ephesus is that there's some unusual things that are happening. It's not the norm, if you will. Now, with that being said, here's something else to re remember. We all know that the book of Ephesians that Paul writes, that's part of our New Testament, is one of the great books of the Bible. Uh, and in fact, as far as the plan and purpose of God, it may rank right up there with the book of Romans as far as, you know, my perspective goes. So it's one of the great books in the New Testament. And it was all born from Paul's ministry that he had in Ephesus for about three years total. And it's getting started right here in Acts chapter 19. So remember that. Some of the passages and some of the great verses that you know from the book of Ephesians has their start right here in Acts chapter 19 when Paul finally enters into Acts chapter 19 and begins to meet with people, including these 12 men who now become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The things I want to point out here in the beginning of this seven verses are this. There's four elements that are very important. One, you see belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? They had to get to a place where John's baptism was not enough. They had to come to a place where they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, they were baptized 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're going to have a baptism on Sunday. Belief, baptism. Baptism always follows belief in the Lord. We believe the Bible teaches believers' baptism. You never see a child being baptized, meaning a baby, in the, in the Bible. The way we are baptized is when we come to personal faith in Christ, and then we are baptized. You see that pattern throughout the New Testament. Saved, baptized, added to the church. So that's what you see here in the beginning of Acts 19. Then third, you see the Holy Spirit come upon them and indwell them, the Holy Spirit, okay? Now again, what makes this a little unusual is instead of the Holy Spirit coming into their lives like he does us the moment we receive Christ as our Savior, here Paul was laying his hands on them after they had believed and were baptized, and then the Holy Spirit came. Again, God doesn't always work the same way. Then finally you see evidence, proof that the Holy Spirit had invaded their lives when they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now, you and I may not have evidence of the Holy Spirit as far as our gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, but the Bible does teach that when the Holy Spirit comes in to indwell us as believers, there should and there will be evidence of the Holy Spirit. There has to be, or else are we really saved? How can God, the Holy Spirit, live within us and there be no evidence there be no fruit if you will so you see those four things in the first seven verses belief in christ baptism in the name of the lord the holy spirit coming and then evidence of the holy spirit verse eight guess where paul's headed back to the synagogue you think after he's been beaten and thrown into the he'd stay away from the synagogue nope he goes right back to the synagogue in fact it says in verse eight as he went, he was speaking fearlessly in the synagogue. Again, what's Christ's vision for his church? That we would be a people of courage, a people of boldness, a people who are fearless, not only to stand up for our Lord Jesus, but also to speak up and to speak out for him, to seize the opportunities that we get to share the gospel and to share Jesus with others and to share the word of God. This is what Paul was doing. He goes into the synagogue and he speaks out fearlessly. That's important. Secondly, it tells us there in verse 8 that he began to address and convince them about the kingdom of God. Let's take those two words, addressing and convincing. What that reminds us of is that Paul had to obviously have a great knowledge of what the Old Testament taught concerning the kingdom of God that he was talking about and the fact that he was able to convince them meant that he had the convictions and that they were strong convictions because you and I cannot convince others of something unless we first have become convinced ourselves. And so we see again here not only this courage in Paul, but we see this comprehension, this insight, this knowledge that he gains through his time in the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit teaching him every day to where he develops these strong convictions to which he can go into the marketplace of life and he can convince others because they see the confidence by which he speaks and the, and the conviction by which he speaks. Then you'll notice this. 
the Bible tells us in verse 8 or on into verse 9 that some were stubborn as they listened to Paul address and convince them about the kingdom of God. By the way, Paul's subject matter here is a little bit interesting. Notice, unlike other places in Acts where it says he's talking to them about Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus, here he's talking to them about the kingdom of God, the fact that God rules, God reigns, God is king. You and I, as his followers, are part of his kingdom. And even though now his kingdom is made up of, in a sense, those of us who believe in him, and it's an invisible kingdom, if you will, because it's about his rule and reign in our hearts, where our worship comes from, that one day he will literally set up a literal earthly kingdom in which he will rule and reign as well. So that was Paul's subject matter. But then it says in verse 9 that some were stubborn. The word in the Greek is literally they were hardened. In fact, it goes on, Luke says, to say they refused to believe. It wasn't that they didn't hear. It wasn't that they didn't understand. It wasn't that they didn't comprehend or grasp it. It literally was they were kicking against the goads, if you will, as the Bible says. It was just like, no, I'm not going to believe. They, they were hardened. And it, it just reminds us of how we have to be careful that we in our hearts, in our minds, do not become hardened and stubborn to the moving of God, to the working of God, to stay sensitive and pliable, to be that clay that God can mold. These people were not so much. And then the Bible says they began to revile the way. I want you to note those two words, the way, because Luke uses that more than any other to describe the people of God. In fact, even in this chapter, if you go over to verse 23 of Acts chapter 19, you'll notice he uses the phrase or the description of the church as the way again. He says, at that time, there was a great disturbance or commotion that took place concerning the way. What does that teach us about Christ's vision for his church, for his people, that we are part of the way. It means that there is a Jesus way, that there is a discernible lifestyle, a discernible pattern of behavior that even others can sort of recognize and say, well, that's, that's the way. That's the way of Jesus. I like to look at the way as a Jesus-shaped life. Let me repeat that. I like to look at the way, that description of us, as a Jesus-shaped life. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to shape our lives. He wants to call us to a certain path in life with him always because he will never call us to a pathway that he is not willing and wanting to accompany us on. And he calls each of us and even our church and entities like our to a pathway with him. It's the way. That's why in John 14, what's Jesus even say of himself? I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. So that's very important here that Luke 
describes the church and the people of God as being of the way. Again, a discernible lifestyle, a, a way of living that Jesus himself shapes for you and I. You see, as a church, we should desire Jesus to shape the path of our church. As individual Christians, we should desire Jesus to shape what our life looks like and what pathway we are on. That's the way. But you'll notice something here also, that after they began to revile the way, Paul was like, fine. I'm going to take those who are open to what I'm talking about, these other disciples, and we're going to go find someplace else to hold our, our lectures, if you will. And so the Bible says, Luke records, that Paul found this sort of school of Tyrannus. It's, it was a lecture hall. And that for two years, Paul taught the word of God every day in this lecture hall. And the Bible says that obviously, now remember what I talked about at the beginning, there are people coming to Ephesus from all over the world because of the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So literally, people would even come by and listen to Paul teach and preach in this lecture hall while they were visiting, and then they would go back to all. So that's why the Bible says in verse 10, pretty much everybody in Asia had heard the word of God at that time. See, even before the internet, even before our electronic devices, God had his way and his plan to be able to get his word out there worldwide. He would bring people from all over the world to certain key places in the ancient world to where once they heard the truth, and maybe whether they even believed it or not, they took that message back home with them where they were. An amazing statement here of how God works. And we see that here. Again, this also reminds us about the, if you will, the perseverance and the endurance and the resilience that God wants to see in his people. Okay, we can't meet here anymore? Okay, we'll find another place to go meet, you know? We'll be creative. God wants to see that in his people. One door may shut, God's gonna open up another door. And that's exactly what he did here in Ephesus with the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Then in verse 11, it says this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Well, the first thing I thought of when I read that many, many months ago and I was preparing for this is, isn't every miracle extraordinary? But see, again, what Luke is emphasizing is but there were things that God did in Ephesus at this time through Paul that he didn't do anywhere else. Why? Well, I personally believe it was because of the intense spiritual darkness that existed in Ephesus and because of a lot of the occult that was there in the midst as well. God was taking some extraordinary means because of the extraordinary uh, situation that was presenting itself, if you will. And so God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I want us all to stop there and remember something that Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10. Now unto God, 
who by the power that is at work within us is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or think. See, Paul says, God not only wants to do extraordinary things by his hand through me, he wants to do extraordinary things through you too. And he can, because he's that kind of a God. And he might not do the exact same things, but God wants his people to realize something. I'm a God of miracles. And I'm a God who has placed through my Holy Spirit my resurrection power within you. And if you trust me and you believe in me and you have faith in me and you make yourself available to me, I can do through you and in you far beyond all that you can ask or think because the same power that allowed Paul to do what he's going to do that we're going to look at here in just a minute, that same power is available to us through the Holy Spirit of God. Same power, same exact power. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. How does God get glory in his people? By us allowing his power to flow in and through us every day. So that we're not living natural lives, we're living supernatural lives, above what we could ever do on our own. Extraordinary miracles. Put your own name in there. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of... See, God can use our hands to do extraordinary things. That's what God wants his people to see. So what was he doing with Paul? Well, remember, Paul by trade was a tent maker. And as a tent maker, Paul would put on an apron and Paul would use handkerchiefs like even many do today, whether it was to wrap around their neck or especially to wrap around their head when they would sweat and to keep the sweat from running down into their eyes and stuff as they worked. And the Bible tells us that God chose to do such extraordinary things through Paul that the very handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul used, as they were distributed, the Bible says all people had to do was touch something of Paul's and they would be healed of their illnesses and any demons that they had that were indwelling in them would actually be cast out. Whoa. That's extraordinary. But that's the power of God. See, God didn't even need Paul to actually be there to do it. God was even just using something that Paul had used and Paul had touched and maybe Paul had even sweated in. It just reminds us, God can do anything and use anything. He's the Lord of hosts. So he's doing extraordinary things here and things are happening. People are realizing Maybe this Diana that we worship, maybe she's not really a God at all. Maybe the God that's showing real evidence of who he really is through people like Paul, his followers, maybe he's the real true God. But then notice also what comes along. You, you always have, when, when people see the power of God at work or they see an anointing on someone's life and they, they can't really understand it, maybe but they want it. 
And here the Bible tells us comes these seven sons of the high priest named Sceva. And they're enamored by this power that Paul has. And so they, they see him using the name of the Lord Jesus to, to do a lot of miracles and to do a lot of extraordinary things. So they think, well, the name of Jesus must be this like magic formula that, that we can just use and we can do the same thing. So the Bible says they started to go around because they were traveling exorcists, whatever that is, and that they were trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus to cast out demons. And they came across this one man who had this evil spirit. And I love what the Bible points out in verse 15. The evil spirit actually speaks, and it's recorded here what the evil spirit says to these seven traveling exorcists, sons of the high priest Sceva, says, I know Jesus, and I'm acquainted with Paul, but who are you? What the evil spirit is saying is actually two things. One, he's saying to these men, Jesus is on my radar, Paul is on my radar, you're not on my radar. Here's something to think about. A little sobering, yes, but nothing that you and I can't handle again with God. I think God wants his people to be living in such a way that we're on the enemy's radar. I really do. See, I think that's a good thing. Because if we're not doing anything for God, if, if, if our life, if our church is not making any kind of inroads or impact or having any influence, then we really won't be on the enemy's radar. The way you and I, as a church and as God's people, get on the enemy's radar is when God is using our lives to make an impact for Jesus Christ in this world. And that's exactly why he knew Jesus and why he knew Paul. Second, when he says, who are you, it's also a statement of disdain. Literally, in the original, it's you, who are you? In other words, who do you think you are? I have sort of a respect for Jesus and for Paul. I have no respect for you wielding whatever you're wielding because you have no power over me at all. And notice what the Bible says, the evil spirit literally takes control of this man, and the evil spirit pummels all seven of these guys. I mean, literally beats them up. And the Bible tells us that they flee, you know, naked and beat up from this evil spirit that had inhabited this man. They had no power at all. And can I tell you, what this reminds us of is that there are many people today who are dabbling with things that they have no business dabbling in. I mean, there are so many even shows out there on television, you know, Ghost Hunters and Portals of Hell now that I've seen on television. People who actually go looking for demonic, you know, beings and trying to get in touch with it. I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea, first of all, the powers that you are messing with, and you have no idea that you, if you are not a part of Jesus Christ, you have no idea what they can do to you and the influence that they can have, because without Jesus Christ, you don't stand a chance against those powers. They are much more powerful than you and I are unless we have the Holy Spirit. Then the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. And it's through that power that you and I can stand before a force like that if we need to, if we have to. 
So then in verse 17, the Bible tells us that when this event became known throughout the city of Ephesus, that fear, great reverential awe fell upon the people. And then the Bible says the name of the Lord Jesus was praised, literally magnified, exalted. Why? Because they saw that there were two powers here. There was a power of evil, but there was also the power of Jesus Christ and his followers, and that the power of Jesus Christ was greater than this other power. I thought to myself, that should be one of the goals that we have as a church, that we would be an environment, a community, where there is great reverential awe for our God and that the name of Jesus Christ is praised and exalted and magnified. And the Bible says when that happened, many came in Ephesus to believe in Jesus. Even the Bible says confessing and making known the deeds that they had done in darkness. And I love that. What that tells us is the light of God had come to the darkness of Ephesus. And people were being changed and transformed. In fact, the Bible tells us that many who had in, their, in darkness uh, been practicing satanic arts had brought these books of, of incantations and spells and all of these things, and literally on their own, they weren't told to do this, they weren't made to do this, as sometimes throughout history people are, are made to, to burn things. No, these people did this on their own accord. They brought these books that represented their old life, and they were renouncing their old life of darkness and their old life connected with the occult and with the satanic arts, and they were bringing these books, and they were literally burning them. It shows, again, the change that was coming over these people and the transformation that the gospel and that the power of God was having in people's lives. And then the Bible says this. They began to add up the value of all these books, and the Bible says 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of all this. And then I love verse 20, because I'm going to come back to that as we close. Verse 20 is a key verse. It says, in this, the word of God continued to grow in power and to prevail. Again, what a great goal for our lives. What a great goal for our church. That the word of God would continue to grow in power and to prevail in our lives. What's that mean? It means that it would carry more and more weight. They would have more and more authority. That if God says it, we do it. We follow it. We believe it. That's what was happening here. The word of God was holding sway over these people's lives. It wasn't just something to read. It was something to believe and something that would change and transform them from the inside out. And that's what was happening. That's Christ's vision for his church. But you may say, well, pastor, why didn't you want to spend too much time on verses 21 through 41? That's maybe the biggest chunk of the chapter. Well, it all has to deal with this great commotion that we Talk about there in verse 23. It's basically a riot breaks out. And why does the riot break out? Well, if you read these 20 verses, it breaks out because a man by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith who was making idols, who basically was making a lot of money and a lot of profit off of the temple of Diana, started to go, hey, guys. And he started to get his other people in the trades together and said, you know what's happening here, don't you? 
The more people that are turning to Jesus Christ, the more they're going to turn away from the temple of Diana. And all of a sudden, the temple of Diana is not going to be any big deal anymore. And we're going to lose money. We can't. we got to do something about this. So I want you to contrast what was happening in verses 21 through 41 because it was all about money. It was all about they lost money with what was happening in verse like 18 and 19 where people didn't care about the money. People in their value system at that point cared more about the spiritual riches that they were gaining through a relationship with Christ than what they were losing as far as earthly material things. Yet in verse 21 through 41, what you see in the rest of the chapter is just the opposite, a total contrast. All those people cared about, all those business people in Ephesus cared about was the economic impact it was going to have on them. They could care less about the spiritual riches. And you and I see that value today. It really does come down to what, what do we value? Do we value our Christ our relationship with Christ, following Christ, and the riches we have in him over everything that the world could offer us? Or does what the world offer us have more of a value in our life? And so we forfeit many times the riches that we could have through Jesus because we're going after the things of the world. Value. Don't miss that word there. In verse 19, the value of those books, 50,000 pieces of silver. What do we value? Let's pray. God, I thank you tonight for the gospel coming to Ephesus. We see here, God, some extraordinary things happening in this city because it's, a, it's an extraordinary city. It housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. All the world came to Ephesus. And yet, God, you are showing here through your people, first of all, that you have a love for all people, that you wanted to reach out and you wanted to touch people's lives. You wanted to let them know the good news about Jesus Christ, that you sent a Savior into this world named Jesus who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, who wants to give us not just life on earth, not life through some dead idol that can't do us any good at all, but life through you, God, the living, breathing, real, active God who is with us every day, who has a plan and purpose for our life, who can fulfill us and satisfy us like no one else or nothing else can. God, that was your message in Acts 19. We saw your power at work. We saw the lives being transformed. We can see it in our own minds right now. We can, we can envision all those people coming, being delivered from their lives of, of darkness, being delivered from the grip that Satan had on them and being set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we can see it. We can see the worship going up and the tears flowing that finally, God, they've been set free. God, I pray that we would never forget that you're the same God today that you were then. 
You're the same God that did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul and through others. And God, you want to use us to do extraordinary things too. So I pray, God, that we would make ourselves available to the great God that you are, to the good God that you are, that we would have enough faith and belief in you that God is feeble and frail and as inadequate and as deficient as we may think we are, there is no deficiency or lacking in you. And you're not looking, God, for those who are worthy, but for those who just believe in you, God, and place ourselves in your mighty hands. Because God, if we have that kind of faith, we can move mountains. And I pray that we would believe that as a church, and that each of us as individual followers of Jesus Christ would believe that as well. God, use this chapter, even as we may go back and read it and study it for ourselves, to encourage us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for being here.